Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Decoding Society. This is your host, D'Angelo Starnes. Today is Wednesday, April the 4th, 2018. And uh, as it is April 4th, and as it is 2018, today marks the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, which is the theme of today's show. Joining me and present on the call right now uh, is uh, Chris Cathcart. Hello, Chris. Hey, D'Angelo. What's happening? Good, brother. How you doing? I, I'm good. It's an it's an interesting day. I've been making a point to follow some of the um, commemorative news coverage and and some interesting things on C-SPAN and. Watched the HBO special the other night, and so uh, a real somber, reflective day relative to the show's topic and you know issues beyond that. Uh, yeah, I wanted to see that HBO special. How was that? It was good. Um, uh, King in, in, into the wilderness. It was. Uh, it basically chronicled the last three years of his life, um, which you know moved him to a new direction led to obviously events of his assassination, but also showed, you know, how he was growing, evolving from just a civil rights leader to one who was addressing issues surrounding basic human rights, as well as poverty, war, and, and, and the, and the pushback that came from all circles um, through his evolution. You know, as he embraced these things, and then it, there's one scene that you have to see. I, I urge your listeners to see that that there's a scene where during the Meredith um, James Meredith march, the, the single man march, and he got shot, and they, they organized a scene and march in, in his place. There's a scene of Dr. King, a news reporter, and Stokely Carmichael walking at the head of this march and essentially debating nonviolence and black power. Back, back and forth, but oh, through really? the reporter. But but it was through the reporter, and it was it was so. Uh, I had think I had seen I had seen pieces of, it, but I hadn't that seen that that lengthy of a coverage of it. And it's essentially why do you want black power? And Stokely Carmichael gives a reason, and then it's why do you why do you prefer nonviolence? Well, we reject. And it was it was point counterpoint, but through the reporter, it was fascinating, and it kind of it kind of underscored that period of his life. So you should check it out. I don't, Okay, yeah. Yeah, I had planned to do that. Uh but um life happens. Uh you know, we, we mentioned last uh on Monday the the book Why We Can't Wait and it wasn't an inaccurate uh uh, uh reflection of about the topic and contents of the book, but the book I was trying to remember was actually uh where do we go from here? Chaos or chaos community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh it's an apt uh question. Uh, it's an apt title and it's an apt question uh to to uh you know well, that that is kinda endured. Go for it. What well, was I think it was cool that you brought up 
uh, Why We Can't Wait, because Why We Can't Wait was written post-Birmingham. So that was early 60s. So that was when King was fully immersed as a civil rights leader um, and addressing issues directly um, related to civil rights as they affected African Americans. By the time we, he wrote, I think in 67, late 66, 67, where do we go from here? Chaos that he had evolved to the point of addressing broader issues, um, you know, basically, you know, poverty, you know, lingering racism, not just in the South, but in the North. And, uh, yeah. You know, and, and, and then taking on the issues of black power because when, when Chaos of Community came out, they basically came out at the time of black power as a concept and a movement was emerging. Right, 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 right. Yeah, no, so it's, 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 it's a, uh, Go ahead. No, no, I was just, his essential point was that, you know, he said it before we either, you know, live together as brothers or parents together as fools. I, I mean, that's, that's the sense that the time was running out. So one of the things he was touching on, he touched on, you know, chaos of community and other speeches is that, that I think also really rankled capitalist America, which he was hinting about radical redistribution of wealth, you know, addressing poverty. Yes. You could not sustain a society, not just with racism, but you could sustain a society with as many people impoverished as they were at that time. So if you so if you think I'm just saying if you look at those books and you kind of book in the concept his philosophy from early late late 1950s or 1960s into uh, almost a direct and brutal confrontation with civil rights and struggle for civil rights to the evolution for human rights addressing issues of poverty and then obviously ultimately coming out against the war. Yeah, you know I, I listened to this real interesting. Um, Podcast a few weeks back uh, It was on uh, The Dig which is uh, Produced by Jacobin Radio And it featured Two professors and I wish I'd have written it down uh, Two brothers And they did a book Where they uh, They essentially Went into An Examination and analysis of the speeches and writings of Dr. King, uh, and they talked about this very uh, this book and, and this point. But more, what, what I found interesting about you know without getting into their analysis, what I found interesting about their discussion was they noted that you, you almost don't see these dissections of of King's right, you know, black. Um, American figures, their writings to the extent that you do, say, a Thomas Jefferson or Abraham Lincoln, um, you know, where there are volumes and volumes of books and, and, and letters uh, that they've written were poured oh. over and, and, and written, you know, and, and they said it's time to, to do a similar uh, dissection of King, you know, because to pick up on a point we made from the last show, which is the sterilization of King, it, it, you know, it, it behooves us to, to actually dig into what you were saying, what, you know, what he actually said and put, place that into context and, um, and apply it to, you know, the current situation. Yeah, but we got to make, you know, as a, as a, as a populist, we have to be 
a little bit more vigilant. I mean, the, the information is there. The, the, the text of the wire post of Vietnam War has been there since he made it in 67. Interestingly, and I, I right. forgot about this, if I knew it at all, he made that speech one year to the day that he died. You know, one year later, yeah. on, on April 4th, 1967, he made that speech in the Riverside Church. And then obviously April 4th, 1968, he was assassinated. But, that, you know, that information was available. Um, many of the, the thing about King, too, is that at the era when he was speaking, there was a lot of his speeches could be recorded and transcribed. So there are a lot of written work of his, like in the book I told you about, The Radical King, some of the writings are essentially transcripts of speeches he gave. And some are essays. Ah. essays he wrote for different publications, but some are also transcripts. So... If you, since you know, for people of color, if you go back to early 1900s, 1800s, let alone any time before that, you know, you may be David Walker's appeal, um, some of the work by Frederick mm-hmm. Douglass, uh, 12 Years a Slave, which is actually, you know, a document that was written, a, a recollection. There just wasn't that much stuff because they, nobody was writing down with black people. <laughs> we were writing this nobody was recording it. So by the time right. Jamie, Malcolm and these folk came along, we were able to take their speeches and then turn them into written word. Now, to your point about the sterilization of his image in history is that uh, um, we have the source materials just that if we can be lazy. I mean, all of us, black folk, everybody involved, and simply just get you know, force-fed the recordings of I Have a Dream. Once a year, then we'll be set, or the mountaintop speech, and we'll be satisfied. There's so much more that we can use to read and to listen to that can we form a more broader, more complete analysis of his philosophy, particularly in the end of his life. Yeah, that's interesting because it is like a lazy shortcut, let's get this over with type of, of recognition. You know, and interestingly, the, the so called I Have a Dream speech is the check cashing day speech, right? We came to the D.C. to cast a check. And so, you know, when you talk about source material, you know, one can go through that to the actual speech and see that the I Have a Dream is actually at the crescendo of this uh, declaration that the march was about folks coming together to cash a, you know, a check that had been, what do you say, returned for insufficient funds because, you know, that America hadn't lived up to, to, to their words. Um so, uh, uh, so uh, let me. Uh, <laughs> that's lost my train. No. So, so uh, I, I wanted to also note that uh, you're absolutely right about that. The Riverside speech that made uh, April fourth, nineteen sixty-seven. You know, in the year, you know, when we talk about the sterilization of Dr. King, in the year uh, between his making that speech and and, and the time of his death. He became a pariah, right? I mean, he was called a traitor because, you know, stay in your lane. Yeah, and, kind and, of, and, dude, you know, not, and, not, and not just by the normal suspects. I mean, he was a pariah to, to Hoover and the FBI and the powers that be in the seats of power in Washington for, you know, since he got started. But he became a pariah to pastors. There's people who would let him in his, their churches. Um, the, you know, the, the, the Roy Wilkins. I mean, there were people who had been stalwart supporters and friends of his who said, if you're going to take this step, you're going to take it alone. Which to me, you know, when I, you know, you talk about the courage of Dr. King facing death, death every day, it took a lot of courage, too, because he could have easily said, and Andy Young says this in, the, in the, the documentary, he said, he said, you know, Doc, you've earned the right 
to just take it easy now. So if you want to live in a cushy condo and up on the Upper West Side of New York and just give sermons and when you feel like it, you've earned that right now. You can do that if you want and let the rest of us, you know, do the other work. But he was like, no, we got to keep pushing. We got to address poverty. We got to expose racism in the North. That's why he went to Chicago. Eventually, why he went to Memphis to help with the sanitation workers with boycotting for equal pay. But, you know, he, he, he did things that most leaders, as we know them in a contemporary sense, would never have done. And it wasn't just the concept that you might get shot. I mean, there's a lot of black men. People hated Jesse. Jesse actually lived with the threat of death as well. But I, the turning right. your back on life of comfort and convenience, knowing that it would throw you in the hot water, even with your best friends. I mean, Zenona Clayton, um, one of King's age, and that's his sister I met. She used to work at Turner Broadcast. And when I worked at Turner Broadcast, I was the honor to meet her. She's one of his lieutenants near the end. She said he died of a broken heart as much as anything because so many of his friends basically, you know, had, had bailed on him because of the Vietnam War question, and they didn't want the heat that came with pissing off the Johnson administration. And the, the Time magazine mm. came out against him, and the L.A. Times came out against him, and all these so-called liberal publications. Um, you know, so it, it wasn't this idea that he was universally beloved his whole life and his whole career in public is just not true. Yeah, you know, I think I read or, or heard somewhere maybe, but I think I read it, that um, his organization, the Southern uh the FELC, excuse me, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, they lost a million dollars in donations after he gave that speech. A million dollars right. in 1967. Yeah, and, and, then, and then put that in, put how much would that would be in real time conversion, right? How much money would that have yeah. been if you converted to today's numbers? Right. Um, so, so I want to kind of shift to. Uh, the act of the assassination. You know, 19, when we say fit, it kind of blew my mind when I realized that this year marks the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. Because as we were growing up, and you and I are relatively the same age, when we were growing up, that was a big um, marker at the, you know, in, 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 in our communities and, and at the back of everyone's mind as well as the year 1968 being a significant uh, year yeah. in terms of politics. Uh, and to think that that's 5-0 50 years ago, I, you know, we're kind of dating ourselves. We're not that old. But that just blows my well, mind because that, that was, you know, well, such a we, significant we were, part I, of our life. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I guess when uh, – when Kennedy was assassinated, I was a few months old. And when King was assassinated, I was four years and a few months. I turned, I guess, five that June. I remember the house being sad. I couldn't understand why. And I remember my mother being very sad. That was like the first time I could I sense some tragedy that had nothing to do with the family, if you know what I mean. There was no family member that right. was sick and died. But I was only like four, so I don't have a really clear recollection of it, but I remember it. And I remember actually watching footage of the Vietnam War on television, too, when I was around that age, you know. But I, I, it just struck me when I started thinking about it now that when we started doing book reports on him, saying the fourth and yeah. fifth grade, that actually, that actually was – that was less than 10 years after he passed. That was probably right. the 70 
by the time we got in, you know, third and fourth grade, we first started putting together. I, I remember doing stuff on him and seeing that iconic image of him laying on the balcony of the Rain Motel when I was probably in the fourth grade. And it, it, I guess you can't really like the 50 year thing for us now seems like a long time, but in the context of, that it happened in our lifetime and we have some cognitive memory of it, it doesn't seem that long ago, you know? No, no, not at all. It all blends together when I think about it. Because uh, you talk about uh, recalling seeing the Vietnam War. I recall, you, you know, the moon going, you know, rockets going to the moon, the Watergate hearings. Uh, yeah. Remember that being on television? Uh, yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, and then, you know, so, so the impact, uh, not just of, you know, his elimination, but the manner of it. You know the the violent manner of it, and then you know that kind of set off, you know, more violent, you know, eliminations. You know, with uh, you know, murder of Fred Hampton, uh, you know, and 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 then uh, and then the the the, the you know, then the riots occurring and the impact that had on um, right black neighborhoods. Still, I mean, there's still there's still some neighborhoods that that have never fully recovered from either the 67 riots, the, the, the Red Summer, or uh, the riots after King's death. I mean, after King's death, Washington, D.C. was fundamentally changed. For, I mean, it's, not, it's, it's much different now. But the impact after King's death lingered in Washington, D.C. for decades, man. Um, oh, would you, we saw it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, you it, see? It, it's so-called yeah. polite. Yeah, all the, the so... Um, the interesting thing about King, too, is that that he dealt with violence his whole public life. When he was stabbed by that crazy woman in New York, he was yeah. hit with a brick in yeah. Cicero, Illinois. He was spat upon, bottles tossed at him, Selma and Birmingham and all, you know, Montgomery. I mean, for for the Prince of Peace, the the major proponent of nonviolence, he he let alone to the last his last day. He it wasn't like he was not getting the brunt of violence. Which always struck me as odd because even with some of the people who complained about his his uh, adherence to nonviolence, he was the only one that had violence perpetrated against him for the most part, you know. <laughs> yeah, that, that, well, that, that, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I actually heard a, a, a read somewhere uh, somebody made an interesting uh, observation about the nonviolent nature of King's speech, uh, King's philosophy uh and they turned it around they said uh it really actually wasn't a non-violent movement but a movement of violence managed violence you know or or choreographed by not choreographed i don't think he used the word choreographed but he it used something like you know king used violence to make to 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 make a point about the injustice yeah. that you know go ahead no he no no you he knew what he was doing in Birmingham when he had school children marching. He knew what was going to happen. Um, there wouldn't have been any civil rights act or voting rights act without violence being shown around the world on television. It wouldn't have happened. I'm not saying that he wanted people to get hurt, but he understood to dramatize what was going on. It took ex- extremely intense visuals. Now, my thing with the nonviolence, and I've gone back and forth on this, that, and I agree with Stokely because Stokely says in this interview, his issue with nonviolence is not a principle you adhere to blanketly. It is something that is a tactic. 
that you use when it's effective and you discard when it's not. So I agree with that. I do agree that nonviolence is a tactic to be used when necessary and abandoned when no longer. But uh, I do I don't believe that King's version of nonviolence was this kind of mamby pamby, cowardly, um, soft tissue tissue paper soft way to protest for change. I think it was extremely courageous, uh, extremely bold. Um, and, I, and, I, and he was coming to the point in the latter years of his life where he was running against, he saw the growing romance that people were having with the term black power, the growth of the, the, the Panthers had just started in 66. So the concept of retaliatory violence coming from the black community was becoming very real. And that, that was something he was wrestling with because that he didn't believe in that. He did hold true to his core belief about nonviolence to the, to the end. But he was being confronted with what the alternative was in ways that he hadn't been before, not before the late 60s. Yeah. Uh, I, I recall, you know, listening to uh, Stokely when he, then, you know, it changed his name to Kwame Ture. He maintained, uh, and he spoke about, you know, at least as long as I could remember, you know, listening to him, that, that, uh, that difference he had with King, you know, where he, he, he would, you know, talk about how he thought, you know, as a tactic, yes, but, you know, as a way of life, no. <laughs> it's like you, you got to have, you know, he, to him, you know, he thought you had to have an alternative, you know, at, at some point because they wouldn't respect your nonviolent stance. They wouldn't respect the discipline you were exuding, um, which you know that's rarely a word you hear too uh, associated with nonviolence. Non- Stokely's <laughs> thing too was that the only the only nonviolence that America embraced was nonviolence in black folk. They'll they'll, they'll pay for yeah. black folk to be violent, and they'll go to see a movie with John Wayne and the flow of violence all night. <laughs> <laughs> right, kill an Indian. Yeah. Yeah, that so true. I mean, so, you uh, know. No, go ahead, bro. I'm with you. Oh, okay. No, I I I was just going to extend that to um, uh, to to the, the use, not just the use of violence, but then you know also the surveillance part of it. I mean, I, to me, the, the the assassination is a message, and I, you know I, I I think about what impact did that have on. Uh, at least uh, black uh, political figures um, pushing, you know, hard against, you know, American empire. Uh, And uh, we know people like Stokely or Kwame, Stokely slash Kwame never lost their principles, but they, you know, he got kind of marginalized, you know, and and then, you know, you you have people become elected in the office like Bobby Rush, ex-Black Panther, but then, you know, he, he has no edge. You know, it's almost like he forgot. You know, I'm, well, I mean, he was an agent. Well, the way I saw it was that the, that the '60s kind of ushered in the transfer of um, the perception of black leadership being from the streets and the pulpits, um, community organizers, people who ran organizations like the Big Six, the Urban League, the NAACP, FDLC, SNCC. Um, these groups, core, they were starting. People started then thinking that the real power would be to get elected office. So then we started getting mayors, Kenneth Gibson in New York and 
John Conyers in Detroit, not as a mayor, but as a congressman. And by the time we got to the early 70s, particularly after the decimation of the Black Power Movement, the actual out-and-out murder of many of the Panthers and associated organizations, then it started going to, you know, we needed Shirley Chisholm and Barbara Jordan. And I'm not, I'm not right. knocking that. I'm just saying that you, when you say marginalized, you, you, yeah, because it, it became safer to put an emphasis on become an elected official if, as if that in and of itself would produce economic equality, um, social equity, educational opportunity. And to degrees they did, but to other degrees, not so much. It should never be well, either. Know, it should have always been all hands on deck. We, we, we've always yeah, been trying to yeah. – it's always been – I think we've been kind of placed in a corral where we only let out a certain exit. So the exit say either you're going to be uh, uh, nonviolent – Direct action protests like Dr. King or nothing. Okay, that, that we're, we're done with that. So now you can be elected official. That's the, it's now politics and politics. And then after that it became business. Remember, after that now you need entrepreneurs. You need yeah, CEOs. Right. You need people to go out and have amass black wealth. But you can't disassociate how all these things are strung together and the issues that made people organize in the first place. We're never going to be satisfied by just one. It wouldn't just be elected official. Just wouldn't be the establishment of black wealth, which we still don't have in masses of people. No, it would be just direct action. It has to be in coordination of these things. And and I think perhaps Dr. King was growing to that understanding that it, it had to be more. It had to expand past as African-Americans into broader issues of poverty and economic injustice. It had to move just past just the national analysis to an international analysis if you deal with what was going on in Vietnam and other, and other emerging um, areas around the world that was dealing with their own liberation struggles and, and freedoms. And I think that's where he was going. And I, you know, that as much as anything, I think led to the, whoever was the one who pulled the trigger going in that back room of that, of that boarding house across the street and doing what he did. Uh, it's interesting you say that. I, I listened to another, I was listening to a program uh, like you, I'm trying to catch here and there uh, you know, programs that or commemorating, for, if that's the appropriate term, or recognizing, or recon, yeah, talking about the the assassination of Dr. King. Um, and I was listening to this interview with a gentleman by the name of William Pepper. Uh, he was uh, uh, he's a lawyer. He's a civil rights activist. He's an author. Um, he was a friend of Dr. King, and he became uh, James Earl Ray's. Uh, Attorney uh, in the, I believe, the 80s, and also the King family attorney, which I know it sounds ironic. But the reason for I bring him up is because he wrote a few books about the assassination of King, and uh, and he did an extensive investigation into the assassination of King, and was able to uncover that James O. Ray was not, you know, surprise, surprise, the person, the trigger person. Um, but it was actually a Memphis policeman uh, in coordination with the FBI, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, and, and I believe uh, the FBI's person on the ground in Memphis was Clyde Tolson. Um, they filed a civil oh, lawsuit. Oh, yeah, I read, I, I read that, but go ahead, because yeah, you hit, I read that, but you seem to know more about it. Go ahead. Yeah, I that, that theory. I heard that. Yeah, it's a, it's actually I'm I want to get you know I got another book I got to order from Wan Books in Los Angeles, ladies and gentlemen, uh, black independent black bookstore. I got another book I got to order from Tom and and James. 
and it's called The Plot to Kill King, and it's by this gentleman, William Pepper, where he, he goes into details of the interviews and, uh, and, and, and uh, eyewitness accounts of, you know, behind-the-scenes machinations that uh, went into uh, uh, the murder of uh, Dr. King. Um, and uh, he has an eyewitness that saw the, the police officer that he identified uh, the taking target practice and, and being paid to uh, to actually, you know, carry out the dirty deed. Um, oh, and, yes, interestingly, uh, Dr. King, when he was shot, did not die immediately. Um, he was taken to a hospital that uh, was designated for him to be taken to if the shot didn't kill him. And at the hospital, they did not, uh, they didn't uh, act uh, actively try to save him. Um, according to uh, Henry, and I don't know if this is in his book, I'm sure it is, uh, uh, somebody from the hospital, I don't know if it was a doctor, actually placed a uh, pillow over King's face to ensure that he expired. Um, oh, wow. I never heard know. that. Yeah, he, he, he said he may have died. You know, he didn't say that that what was. He said he may have died from the wound anyway, but he wasn't dead when he got to the hospital, uh, and it wasn't an act. He said he was. They were trying to save him on his way to the hospital, but it's at the hospital that they, that they stopped trying to uh, save his life, and you know may oh, have. Wow. That yeah, may have uh, accelerated his well, expiration. Well, one thing, one one thing that's interesting that that you know we because we can, I'm sure there's speculation left, right, and center about how this all went down. But I I did read this as a fact that that uh, there was a uh, some movement in some bushy area below the boarding house. There was a boarding house on the back side of the Lorraine Motel, on the front side of it. And it was the back of this boarding house, and then that's where the shot was fired from this bathroom. And there was some witness who saw some rustling around in the bushes below where the shot came out of. What happened was the the the, the, um, the screen window had been pushed out and was on the ground below. So whoever shot, they pushed the window out and then shot through the window. Uh, but there was right. some, there was an eyewitness that saw rustling in the bushes. But on April fifth, the Memphis Public Works came and cut all those bushes down, and that's a fact. Oh, that's now, right. Why they did yeah. why they did that or not? They, they claimed it was, I think, routine um, maintenance, but that did happen. So right, no, yeah, I heard that too. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Plot to uh, uh, to uh, to kill King is the is an assassinate King. I'm sorry, let me look at my notes. William Pepper is the author. And the title of the book is The Plot to Kill King. So uh, I'm going to get that along with that, uh, the radical king that you said Cornell West uh, uh, edited or? Yeah, the, ra- the radical king. And, and, and you shared a pretty, I read that article you shared it, that Cornell West wrote in The Guardian. People can try to check that out too if they get a chance. So relative right. to King and the, the, the more, you know, how he, he was much more radical and, Challenging the status quo that he's given credit for, and I think it's a good read. The Guardian you can find that online pretty easily. It was a real good read. Yeah, yeah, and, that, and it's a, and it's a relatively quick read. 
Uh, yeah, the Guardian opinion section, Cornell West, I believe the date is April 3rd, 2018. It's uh, titled, Martin Luther King Jr. was a radical. We must not sterilize his legacy. Uh, so um, I know we got to hop on another call. As I, you know, we talk about uh, chaos or community, where do we go from here? Um, might be applicable to our alma mater as it continues to work through some of these challenges that the students have presented to the, the uh, university's administration. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Right. Um, you have any final thoughts on this particular uh, string of uh, topic? I mean, string of discussions we've had on on Doctor. No, I, you know, all I could say is, if anybody's listening for real, it's that it's not about pausing on the 50th anniversary. I and mean, we all need markers. Everybody needs something to, you know, reflect on. So I can I understand the 50th, but the study of his life. Um, beyond what we're fed by the dominant media, beyond what we're fed in the, the you know the everyday information that comes our way through television or newspapers, you have to go and do some reading on your own. Go, go. There's a lot of speeches on YouTube. Actually, if you just put in Dr. King and speeches and some topics, you'll see some stuff you probably haven't seen before. Let's not let the analysis and appreciation of this man, you know fade away because the, the more time and years pass, the less there are going to be people who have the kind of understanding that you and I have to be because being born during that time, as we generate after generation, we're going to have to be really stalwart in protecting the true legacy of this man and what it meant um, so that 30 years from now, 50 years from this 50th anniversary, it's not a whole nother version of him that's out there and what we just discussed won't have any relevance. I'm just hoping that we can stay vigilant and make sure that this this type of dialogue and analysis doesn't stop when this 50th anniversary stops being celebrated in dominant media. Hey, that's a good last word to end on, uh, and I completely co-sign. You know, uh, read, yes, you've got the primary source material, so go to it. Uh, Please subscribe to our uh, show on iTunes and SoundCloud. Uh, be so kind as to leave us a rating or review. Uh, we'll be back uh, next week uh, with a current event topic. And until then, thank you very much, Chris Cathcart, and everybody take care. Oh, thank you. All right, man. All See right. you. All right. Yep.